Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute. And once again, welcome. Do Reformed Christians believe in baptismal regeneration? How do Reformed Christians classically relate baptism to the church and to faith? Is faith required for baptism? Good day to you. I'm Mark Garcia, President and Fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone Theological Institute, and I'm very happy today to welcome you to episode number 29 of Greystone Conversations. Today's episode is the last study in a series featured at greystoneconnect.org called We Distinguish, subtitled Scholastic Distinctions in Reformed Theology and Ministry. This is a series led by Dr. Mark Jones, a Greystone Fellow in Theology and History who is also pastor of Faith Vancouver Church, a PCA congregation in Vancouver, Canada, and who is a specialist as well in post-Reformation Reformed theology, which gives rise to his special contribution along the lines of this series. Dr. Jones is the author of a number of highly regarded general audience books in Christian theology, and in those books has proven his abilities as a communicator to the general public but he is also someone with experience in academic scholarship, having edited with Michael Haken, A New Divinity, Transatlantic Reformed Evangelical Debates During the Long 18th Century in 2016, and who wrote with Joel Beakey, A Puritan Theology, Doctrine for Life, as well as Why Heaven Kissed Earth, The Christology of the Puritan Reformed Orthodox Theologian, Thomas Goodwin, 1600 to 1680. He's also the editor, again with Michael Haken, of a most important book and one quite relevant to this subject of distinctions, a book called Drawn into Controversy, Reformed Theological Diversity and Debates Within 17th Century British Puritanism, a book published in 2011. In this series of studies, again called We Distinguish, Dr. Jones takes to task the often confusing uses of the word Calvinism today. He explains in the opening talk of the series how Calvinism is popular today in certain evangelical circles, but there is a great deal of uncertainty as to what we mean or should mean by the term. Arguably, the term has lost its usefulness altogether, and yet even that is a complicated story. There are certainly some misunderstandings about Reformed theology that need to be corrected, and the use of the word Calvinism has made this need quite clear. And so this short course, this micro-course called We Distinguish, explores how the scholastic method used by several generations of Reformers can still help students and practitioners of theology in our quest to know and to promote theological truth, as well as to better understand what we mean by Reformed. In this series, Dr. Jones focuses on the way the Reformers and their followers viewed Scripture as a source of the knowledge of God, understood the doctrine of the Trinity, understood the place of good works in the Christian life, defined and unpacked what we mean by covenant theology, and many other related topics. Dr. Jones also notes how these theologians managed their diverse views within a real and fruitful ecclesiastical harmony, a reformed Catholicity, and were content in an admirable and commendable way to leave some questions unanswered. The talks that are included in this series include the opening lecture on terminology, in which the question is raised, why is Reformed Catholic 
a preferable term to Calvinist as a reference to the Reformed body of doctrine. The second talk is called Protestant Scholasticism, in which an explanation is given for why scholasticism is not, in fact, a bad word in Reformed or Evangelical theology, but in fact, Reformed theology traditionally and classically is not only Reformed Catholic theology, but also Reformed scholastic theology. The third lecture explores what Dr. Jones calls the confessional principle, exploring in what ways the Reformed tradition of normed norms, self-consciously ruled by Scripture as the norming norm, included a high but subordinate use of the Christian tradition. The fourth lecture explores the reality, often overlooked but immensely important, of diversity within the Reformed confessional and theological tradition. The Reformed tradition was not merely one of development, characterized by external and internal disputes, but also a reality ecclesiastically in which many of those disputes remained unresolved and Reformed theology would persist as a tradition open to a range of possible answers to certain questions. After these four foundational lectures, Dr. Jones moves into particular case studies. The fifth one explores the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of God at work in the Christian and Reformed doctrine of the Trinity, and the question of subordination, asking if one should speak of the Son eternally submitting to the Father if the simplicity of God is true, which would mean, therefore, that God has one essence and one will, which are identical with his essence. The sixth study is a case study in the question of good works and in what sense or senses good works are necessary to salvation in traditional and confessional Reformed theology. The seventh lecture and the third case study investigates the covenant with Adam and the nature of sin, asking how we might clarify our meaning when we refer to covenant and sin in relation to nature, creation, law, works, grace, or life. The final lecture and the last case study is the one that we are featuring today as an episode in Greystone Conversations. It is Dr. Jones's exploration of the relationship of covenant, church, baptism, and faith. How have the Reformed classically understood the relationship of covenant, regeneration, faith, the church, the sanctification of Christ himself, and the status of children. The answers may surprise you. Understanding why these answers are, in fact, not only perhaps surprising, but also quite diverse, may go a very long way to helping us better understand the nature of differences today and historically among those who claim the name Reformed but have different understandings of the relationship of baptism to faith and to the church. At the very least, we come away from Dr. Jones's series, not only encouraged about the diversity alongside real unity in the traditional and confessional reform tradition, but also excited about the possibilities of still greater understanding and clarification in our quest for greater faithfulness in our theological work, as well as in our ecclesiastical work, before the face and presence of our holy God. What is also exciting is that we're able to offer this episode today, this last lecture in Dr. Jones's We Distinguish series, in connection with its availability for the first time at Greystone Connect as a full micro-course, which you and your friends and colleagues can take together. In other words, not only are you able to make your way through the series as a whole, as an individual, and especially as a Greystone member, but you're able now to use this series in the context of group study. And we have provided a series of discussion questions as well as supplemental resources for each of Dr. Jones's lectures in order to facilitate your discussion and your exploration of these questions together. 
The group study option is one we've been quite excited about at Greystone for some time, and we're very pleased to be in the middle of uh, rolling out a series of group study options at Greystone Connect. This may be among the most important that we offer, as what Dr. Jones accomplishes in this series is, in my view, nothing less than indispensable as a mode of theological inquiry and discussion much in need of recovery. And so I commend the series to you, commending the group study option in particular, which can be extended by Greystone members to those who are not Greystone members as well. And as I commend the series to you, I'm commending it especially with a view to the edification that is likely to be enjoyed as you reflect theologically and patiently about some of the large questions the Christian and the Reformed tradition in particular have long been exploring. Well, thank you once again for joining us for Greystone Conversations today. I trust you will enjoy Dr. Jones's lesson on how the Reformed tradition understands the relationship of baptism, the covenant, the church, and faith. And as you do, remember us in your prayers and perhaps with your support as well as we lean on you and are grateful for your partnership in seeing the work of Greystone Theological Institute advance. Well, thank you for your time today and for reflecting with us together on the shape and direction of greater faithfulness to our triune God. And now, episode number 29 of Greystone Conversations. So I know we just did talk about covenants of works, but what I want to do in this is when we do look at covenant, just give you a sort of example of how a scholastic-like reformed understanding of covenant helps us illuminate the concepts a little bit. I know biblical theology has much to, to help us with. I tried to do that in terms of the Adam sonship principle in the previous talk. So I'm trying to wed together scholasticism, biblical theology, etc. So in terms of covenant church and baptism, the first thing to understand, I think, that helps us navigate this terrain is that God is a relational being who, out of his goodness, he freely decides to reveal himself to his creatures, uh, not only before the entrance of sin, but also after Adam's transgression. With sovereign authority, he speaks words of life and promise to his creatures, again, both before and after the fall. He also threatens and curses before and after. No creature can escape either a blessing or, and or, we can even say in some cases, a curse from God. God may be for you or against you, and there is a sense in which he may be both. If he is for you, everything is well. Conversely, if he is against you, then all is not well. The covenant concept in the Bible helps us to understand the all-important question, is God for you or is he against you? Indeed, all true theology is anchored in and built upon God's covenants. Christians know that the difference in God's attitude towards his creatures depends on whether one is united, and by attitude I mean eternal destiny. One is united to Jesus Christ by faith, or finds himself as one who is separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's the distinction I'm speaking of. In Ephesians 2.12, Paul brings together various different biblical theological themes in the scriptures. Writing to Gentile Christians, Paul reminds his readers of their perilous condition before they became incorporated into Christ by faith. These Gentiles had several particular problems as those outside of God's saving purposes, including being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. To be alienated from God is to be alienated from Israel, since the Messiah is from Israel. This Messiah of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, is a light for the nations that Yahweh's salvation may reach to the end of the earth, in Isaiah 49, verse 6. So the commonwealth signifies a group of people under a specific government and head. So the Gentiles were separated from God's people who possessed the covenants of promise. 
These ancient covenants made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and David, for example, were promises that would ultimately find their yes and their amen in Christ. Paul celebrates that fact that these Gentiles are now in Christ and share equally in the same promises that were made to Jews who also put their faith in God's Messiah. God's people from the very beginning constitute one body who belong to the household of God. This is the language of Ephesians 2. Reformed covenant theology helps us to make sense of these realities where the doctrine of the church and salvation come into the closest proximity. Various questions have been vigorously debated over the course of ecclesiastical history. And since the time of the Reformation, Anabaptists question whether infants of believers should be publicly incorporated into the church through baptism. Baptist divines in England valued much in the Westminster Confession of Faith and adopted the majority of its teachings in their own second London Confession, which had been earlier published in London in 1677. And in comparing Westminster with London, one finds that there are some changes made by the Baptists in almost every chapter. But perhaps the most significant changes occur in the revisions to chapter 26 of the church and chapters 28 of the sacraments verses of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So they, we call it the sacraments, they call it of baptism and the Lord's Supper and of chapter 29 of baptism. So do infants of believing parents or a believing parent belong in the visible church or not? The answer to this question depends not only on one's understanding of the doctrine of the covenant, but also on one's view of the church, salvation and hermeneutics, etc. So this talk is going to look at the reformed doctrine of the covenant, which has been an integral theological concept since the Reformation and especially in the post-Reformation eras, where the covenant was a highly developed concept in a way that structured salvation history. Coupled with this, I'll also look at the basic nature of the church and also a discussion of infant baptism as understood by a particular branch of divines from the early modern era. So what is a covenant? Reformed Orthodox theologians have generally had a basically agreed upon understanding of a covenant. So whether John Ball, who calls it a mutual compact between God and man, or Zacharias or Sinus, who also calls it a mutual contract between two parties, the basic idea of a covenant involves an agreement between two or more parties, which explains why most of the Reformed understood the arrangement between God and Adam, as I said earlier, as a covenant. With that said, this does not mean there are not certain details in the various covenants of Scripture which show some degree of diversity on how we understand each particular historical covenant. For example, John Owen notes that the word is used in great variety, and what is intended by it must be learned from the subject matter treated of. Reformed Orthodox divines knew full well that covenant has a more pregnant meaning in the new covenant compared to the covenant of works made with Adam. So because the difference between God and the creature is so great, the only way we can have a relationship with God to our advantage is through God's voluntary condescension, which is expressed by way of a covenant. So the covenant has certain agreements, certain ends and certain means to accomplish it. And Owen says that the ends lead to man serving God as he wishes in order to be blessed by him and enjoy him forever. So in a fine exegetical commentary on Hebrews, the Westminster divine William Gouge explains a covenant by using, this will bring you back to your first two talks, Aristotelian fourfold causation. Thus, a covenant may be understood in terms of the efficient, the material, the formal, and the final causes. So the principal efficient, says Gouge, is God. For none can bind the creator to a creature but God himself, and that of his own mere pleasure and goodwill. But the creator 
has power to bind his creature to him, and that in what duty he pleases, to which duty the creature is bound readily to yield himself, and that as creature and servant of God, but more especially as a confederate, as one of those that are in covenant with God. So he will then explain this, that the procuring cause is the pleasure and goodwill of God. Then also there might be something whereby he says that there is something which we can say, is there outside of God to move him in the creature? And the answer is no. Because the creature itself is of God, and whatsoever it has is from God, and all of the ability that it has in it to do any good is from God, that nothing can impel God outside of God to arrange this covenant relationship. So the principal efficient is God. It is God's mere good pleasure. And anything that happens in the covenant is because God has established it apart from consideration of a creature coming to him and saying, you know, I've got a great idea. You know, Abraham says, I want to be the father of many nations. And God then goes, oh, that's a good idea, Abraham. I'm going to ratify your decision. Secondly, the matter, the material cause of a divine covenant consists in things that are covenanted. There are two sorts. One on God's part, which is the good promised. The other on man's part, which is the duty engaged, and that in way of gratitude. So the material cause are the things covenanted. The formal cause consists in the mutual binding of the persons covenanting one to the other. So a covenant is a bond. It is like a vow and oath, which are stronger bonds. And the bond on God's part is most sure, arising from himself. On man's part, it is enjoined to him and imposed on him. So there's a bond. The formal cause, it is the binding of the parties together. The material cause, as I said earlier, are the things that they are to do. But the things they are to do have to be then established formally by way of the formal cause, the binding. The ends or the final cause of the covenant are of two sorts. He distinguishes between supreme and subordinate. The supreme end is God's glory. This is the supreme end of all things and the best end that can be. So wisdom teaches men to aim at the best end. And God, being wisdom itself, must needs aim at the end, which is his glory. So God establishes this covenant, whatever covenant it may be, to the supreme end, which is his glory. But there is a subordinate end. The subordinate end, because there's two parties involved who have been covenanted together, is man's happiness comprised under the word life. This is the end of all God's covenants with man, that we should be happy. And that is in terms of our holiness, our happiness, and our eternal life. So by using Aristotelian categories, William Gouge is able to offer a sort of mini-divinity in terms of the covenant concept. In fact, what becomes clear is the interconnectedness between understanding the covenant in Scripture and other related loci, such as the doctrine of God. The covenant arises from God's goodness, reveals God's goodness, and thus necessarily glorifies God in terms of the supreme end of all things. In other words, God has used the doctrine of the covenant as the means by which he will not only save man and make him happy, the subordinate end, but also the means by which God will be glorified. For this to happen, the material cause involving both obligations from God and man, as well as the formal cause whereby there is a bond between man and God are required. So there's a there's a reform scholastic sort of mini exposition of the covenant concept in terms of the different causes and ends in a covenant. 
Now, the covenant of grace is distinctly associated with the Reformed theological tradition. It goes back to Geneva, but what we find is that because salvation is exclusively in Jesus Christ, whether for Adam, for Paul, for Augustine, or Calvin, it doesn't matter when you're living, because salvation is in Christ, we are all then bound together to God through Christ, and therefore there is a unity in terms of God's saving purposes. So what does this mean? It means that the covenant of grace, a theological construct, is one in substance, but it has different circumstances. So you'll have to understand that the old covenant and the new covenant are what we call biblical covenants, just as the Noahic is and the Davidic covenant and so on. Those are biblical phrases and terms, but then the covenant of grace is a theological construct that seeks to unify all of the saving purposes of God under one promise, that is Jesus Christ. The condition of that promise is faith. We are the one party, God is the other party. So it has the nature of a covenant, which we call the covenant of grace. And that's why it gets tricky, because we have a theological construct as well as a biblical covenant, like the new covenant. And so what relationship does the new covenant have to the covenant of grace? And that's where you say, is it synonymous and and so on, which I'll get to. The Westminster Divines explicitly refer to God's redemptive covenant as a covenant of grace, whereby he freely offers salvation to sinners through Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in order that they may be saved. They do also speak of a redemptive historical contrast between the two dispensations or times, the time of the law and the time of the gospel. These are redemptive historical phrases. This covenant of grace represents the heart and soul of a reformed understanding of salvation history. Salvation is from the Lord. But while we can refer to the covenant of grace as a one-sided covenant, foidus monopleuron, since it originates from God and depends on Christ's mediatorial work, we can also speak of the covenant of grace as a two-sided covenant, foidus dipleuron. As the confession makes clear, in this covenant, God requires faith in Christ for salvation. This is to guard against antinomian tendencies. This refers to the conditionality of the covenant, and many would argue that all covenants have conditions. Ball thus brings out the one-sidedness and the two-sidedness of the covenant of grace in the following way. The covenant of grace is that free and gracious covenant which God of his mere mercy in Jesus Christ made with man a miserable and wretched sinner, promising unto him pardon of sin and eternal happiness if he will return from his iniquity, embrace mercy reached forth by faith and walk before God in sincere, faithful and willing obedience as becomes such a creature lifted up into such enjoyment and partaker of such promises. So this is where the reform distinguish between impetration and application. Impetration is the mediatorial work of Christ, which is unconditional and one-sided. Application involves the applied work of Christ to us, which creates faith in us and therefore obedience, which are the conditions of the covenant that God makes. So it begins in Genesis 3.15. It makes its way throughout all of redemptive history. And what you find is that throughout redemptive history, you have the the one-sidedness and the two-sidedness aspects of the covenants that are carefully elaborated upon in the way God reveals salvation history. But at the very basic, you can understand that we come back to the right versus possession then distinction in terms of good works. The right is exclusively attributed to Christ and what he has done apart from any consideration of works. The possession of salvation includes faith and our good works that lead us to glory. And this is how they understood then the covenant concept in terms of right and possession, unilateral, bilateral, unconditional, conditional. 
And, and these are just, again, scholastic distinctions and terms that were used to help us. So Abraham was justified by faith alone with no other grace working with it, but his faith did not lie dead in him as a dormant and idle quality. Saving faith is lively and operative, attended with every other grace of the Spirit. Hence, the same faith that embraced God's promise in Genesis 15:6 is the same faith that enabled Abraham to walk in obedience to God by being willing to offer up Isaac. So, the new covenant is the flower, the end of what the covenant of grace was in the time of the law. Um, but what I wanted to emphasize just by way of introduction then in terms of how we then come to our understanding of the church is that not only do we have a unifying theological concept such as the covenant of grace, but within that covenant of grace administered differently over the various dispensations of redemptive history, you have the one-sidedness and two-sidedness concepts that are there. And it's so it doesn't work to say that is the covenant of grace conditional or is the covenant of grace unconditional? As a Reformed theologians, we don't say one or the other. We just say we distinguish, and then we say it's unconditional in this sense, conditional in this sense. Now, when it comes to the church, Reformed covenant theology brings together a host of doctrines such as the doctrine of salvation, God, Christ, man, and the church. Regarding the latter, the church, it may come as a surprise to some today to hear that the church began with Adam and Eve, not just before the fall, but also after. Working with the militant versus triumphant church distinction, the Synopsis Purioris Theologiae, the synopsis of a pure theology, says that the militant church is divided first into the church of the Old and the New Testament. Many Reformed divines held to the idea of a universal visible church as the goal of ecclesiology. This was God's intention in the garden with Adam. Adam and Eve were to populate the earth with children of God as God's temple extended to include worldwide dominion. The people of God would have been one a worshipping community of the elect who called out upon the name of the Lord. Even with the entrance of sin, this basic purpose of God did not change. Rather, it would be realized through the second Adam, Jesus, who is God's and the world's prophet, priest, and king. So the church, the ecclesia, denotes a gathered assembly or congregation which is the basic idea behind the Old Testament word kahal. Naturally, the context in which church is used must determine its precise meaning. So generally, the church refers to God's people who are believers in the Messiah, though we must also include the elect angels in God's household. If the covenant of grace begins in Genesis 3.15 with the first promise of a conquering seed from the woman, then Adam and Eve possessed enough revelation to worship God in the name of the Messiah. The church refers to those who outwardly profess Christ, which has been called the visible church. So the outward or visible church is made up of believers in terms of their profession. But that does not mean there are not those who are spurious believers who will ultimately, whether in this life or at the final judgment, be revealed for who they really are. Hence the visible, invisible distinction, which Macovius says, and this comes to scholastic discourse, is not a distinction of a genus into two species, but a verbal distinction. For insofar as the church has marks from which it can be known, Insofar, it is called visible. But as far as the elect are present in the church, known by God alone, insofar it is invisible. Likewise, the Synopsis Purioris Theologiae says, this visible church is strictly speaking not different from the invisible church. It's very important to understand. But it is only considered in a different way. The former 
as coming about, the latter as having come about. For that invisible church is gathered and formed within the visible church. The invisible church is inherent in and contained by the visible one. This distinction has a long pedigree in the church, especially in Augustine's work, Baptism Against the Donatists. Now, from the time of Adam, it was necessary that he should be one who has faith in the Messiah and worshipped God accordingly. Speaking of the Old Testament church, John Owen states that all believers have faith in Christ and to deny it is to renounce both the Old Testament and the New. He adds, from the giving of that promise, the faith of the whole church was fixed on him whom God would send in our nature to redeem and save them. So what Owen's saying is that the object of faith has been Christ for all who are part of the gathered people, but the nature of covenant theology also considers the progress of revelation. According to Goodwin in the Old Testament, the church of God was an infant and was to grow up by degrees. For such, I say, was the ceremonial law. And then came David and the prophets and led them up further. But the church was not grown into man's estate till Christ came. The maturity of the church was a slow progression, anchored by God's covenant promises that would see formal introduction of Gentiles after the death and resurrection of Christ in fulfillment of the covenant promises made to God's servant in Isaiah 49, but also going back to Genesis 17. Not to be missed is the fact that God's covenant promises to his people provide the foundation for the existence of a body of believers who put their faith in God's provision for them and so live in obedience to God. What was true for Adam, Abraham, and David is still true for God's people today. Without God's covenant, there is no church because there is no promise and fulfillment concerning the person and work of Christ. How one can deny that a person who puts their faith in Christ, whether before the incarnation in the time of promise or after the time of fulfillment, how can one say that they are not part of the body of Christ? To belong to the body of Christ is to worship God truly in Christ's name and therefore necessarily be part of the gathered people of God, the visible church. The Nicene Creed speaks of one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The Christian view of the church highlights the Catholicity of the church in all ages, not just as a phenomenon that occurred after the death of the last apostle. Following Augustine, Reformed theologians took the Catholic Church to include those before, during, and after Christ. They included the Church in glory and the Church on earth. One Lord, one body, one Church. Thus the Church has existed from the time of Adam, even if somewhat concealed and obscure. As Turretin says, in the first interval of the first worlds from Adam to Noah, the church began in Adam and his family. Hence the faith of Abel is celebrated, and the piety of Seth and Enosh, in whose time the name of the Lord began to be invoked, undoubtedly by public and solemn service. Enoch and his posterity continued the church till Noah, and from Noah to Shem, up until the time of Abraham, Turton adds, with him God willed to make a covenant in a more illustrious manner, and thus he preserved the church in his family, which was increased wonderfully in Egypt, until it grew into a most populous nation, which he gathered together into the form of a republic, to which he gave statutes and laws, and which should subsist in that polity until Christ, although with various changes. So as the covenant of grace unfolds, the church comes to an increasing maturity. They go hand in hand. And so the continued revelation of God's purposes in Christ are not in the hopeful expectation of a church one day, 
but rather to guide the people of God over the ages until the consummation. Here is where we come now to covenant children, a more tricky aspect. The place of the children of believers in the new covenant has been a source of great debate in the Christian church, especially since the time of the Reformation and 17th century England, for example. Reformed covenant theology has been adamant that God has not excommunicated the seed of believers from his covenant in the new covenant. The makeup of the church since the time of the apostles includes people of all ages, races, genders, languages, backgrounds, etc. The Reformed position claims that the church is not an assembly for adults only, but there is a significant branch of Reformed orthodoxy that also believes that faith is required for baptism. Let me repeat that. There is a significant group of Reformed theologians who do believe that a church should be made up of believers and that faith is required for baptism. This will clearly involve some explanation. So it will end up turning the argument on its head, I think, in typical Reformed versus Baptist polemics. Baptism really establishes in a public, visible manner a covenant relationship since it is a naming ceremony. Herman Vitius, agreeing with Forbes, argues that baptism is a seal not so much of the secret purpose of God as of the revealed covenant of grace. Since all supernatural theology is relational and hence covenantal, The baptism of covenant members brings with it promises and responsibilities, blessings and curses, all from a gracious God. What benefits from the covenant of grace does baptism confer upon elect infants who have a right to baptism? Vitzius says that the blessings sealed by baptism include chiefly the following, his words, In the first place, general communion with Christ and with his mystical body, and consequently a right to the enjoyment of all its attendant advantages. With this view, we are said to be baptized into Christ. This communion with Christ, without doubt, implies that the baptized infant may be regarded as given by the Father, as redeemed by Christ, as at least so far reconciled to God through Christ, that its sin can never be imputed to it for punishment. This is how we are to reckon infants, that baptism is a sign and seal of real spiritual blessings. To this, Vitzius adds the washing away of sin, including its guilt, answering to justification, and its filth answering to sanctification. Thus, regeneration is necessary for these benefits to be applied. Moreover, baptism also signifies, and I quote, a happy deliverance from all the miseries of this life and a blessed victory over the hardships of the world through our resurrection from the dead. According to Vitzius, The Reformed are all of one mind on this point, namely the meaning of baptism. So what does baptism mean? It means the gospel. Children of believers are baptized because they are covenant members. So far, so good for Reformed. Fellowship with Christ and his body, for example, technically occur before baptism. Accordingly, If our children do not possess fellowship with Christ and the church, they are therefore pagans without Christ and without hope and should not be baptized. Vitzius says that there is no middle condition since those who are not in Christ must belong to Satan. To put this more starkly, we either view our children as children of God children of the covenant, or as children of the devil. If then our covenant children have communion with Christ and the church before baptism, 
then they also have remission of sin. Vitsi says, which is the first thing that flows from the enjoyment of the covenant of grace. Many, if not most, Reformed divines spoke of the root or seed of faith being present in elect infants. Thomas Manton noted that elect infants in general have jus ad rem, a right to heaven, but there is no jus in re, no actual right, but by faith. As they are called rational before they had use of reason, so we have found that infants may, no must, and have a principle of faith from when they may be said to be true believers. Then he then explains how this is possible. And this will maybe illuminate what was just a little bit complex. In his view, they do not have actual faith, which begins in knowledge and ends in affiance. It remains, therefore, that they have the seed of faith or some principle of grace conveyed into their souls by the hidden operation of the Spirit of God, which gives them an interest in Christ. He notes how different expressions are used by the Orthodox. The habit of faith, principle of faith, inclination of faith, etc. Because salvation is of the Lord, infants are enabled by what is called a passive reception. This is what William Ames used to be united to Christ, which means the habit of faith is not altogether without act, though it be such an act as is proper to their age. So they're not saying there are no acts of faith, but it is proper to their age. And so the act of faith will necessarily be different for a a one-day-old as it would be for a a one-year-old, for a ten-year-old, etc. But they have the habit of faith. Now, the issue is not whether God has the power to grant the grace of regeneration to infants before baptism. Rather... According to Vitzius, we are to believe that this is God's ordinary manner of working among elect infants. So elect infants generally possess the habit of faith, ordinarily. Thus, quoting Vitzius, since God may from their very birth receive elect infants into fellowship of his covenant, may unite them to Christ, there seems no reason why he should not regenerate them at the same time. Whether the root and seed of conversion is antecedent to baptism or tied to baptism was a source of debate among Reformed divines. After quoting Cornelius Burgess's position on this, where he connects regeneration with that ordinance as a sine qua non, and so Burgess is connecting regeneration to baptism, He claims that Burgess's opinion is not admitted by the Reformed divines whom he himself quotes. So he says that when Burgess makes his argument, he's using guys in a a way that is not judicious. In Vitzius's view, the well-known opinion of these divines is that the efficacy of baptism consists not in producing regeneration, but in sealing a regeneration already produced. So, it must be asserted this view of the Reformed is based upon the judgment of charity, and I'll explain. But even in the application of the judgment of charity, there was a dispute. For example, a debate took place at the Westminster Assembly between Thomas Goodwin, Lazarus Seaman, Stephen Marshall, Richard Vines, and... It concerned the meaning of holy in in 1 Corinthians 7.14. Goodwin claims that the holiness possessed by children of believers is a holiness whereby they possess the Holy Spirit. Seaman believed this removed the common and ordinary ground of baptizing of infants and lays a new ground. Goodwin denies that he is arguing that they are all actually saved but we are to judge them so. Goodwin is not denying that there are some who are not elect, such as Esau. He is not actually judging the reality of their eternal state, as if he had insight into the decree of God, but how he is to judge 
the infants of believers, when it comes to each child, Goodwin feels that he must judge they are saved, even if it may be the case they are not ultimately elect, which is something that only God infallibly knows. Marshall does not think he is bound to judge of each infant that they possess real holiness, but only federal holiness. But Goodwin responded that there are not two kinds of holiness. He says, if you, that is Marshall, make it any other holiness, then baptism is a seal of some other holiness than the holiness of salvation. He's saying baptism is is a sign and seal of true, real holiness. In Marshall's view, the holiness Goodwin attributes to infants necessarily and infallibly saves them. But Goodwin says, the terminus of a man's judgment is to be the infant's saving or salvation. But I am not to have an infallible judgment of it, but such a judgment as answers the promise. So Goodwin is saying, I can only have the judgment according to God's promise. It's not infallible, but the terminus of my judgment leads to that because I can have no other access to the decree. So what Goodwin and Vitius are saying in brief is that we baptize believers. Or to put it more provocatively, a large strain of Reformed divine held to believers only baptism. So in the Synopsis Purioris, in Disputation 44, Section 29, we read, Therefore, we do not join the efficacy of baptism to that moment in which the body is wet with external water, but in all to be baptized, we, along with the Scripture, pre-require faith and repentance only according to the judgment of charity. And this both in covenant children in whom we contend that from the virtue of divine blessing and the evangelical covenant, the seed and spirit of faith and repentance should be stated to be, as well as in adults in whom the actual profession of faith and repentance is necessary. Now, that's crazy for a modern day reformed person to hear that. You may, because you're educated people, go, yeah, 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 come on, Mark, tell me something I don't know. Fine. In a similar manner, Ursinus says to be born in the church is to have a profession of faith. Actual faith is required in adults and an inclination to faith in infants. Infants born of believing parents have faith as to inclination. Turton agrees that the act is not present yet in the infants of believers, but that does not mean that, like reason, faith is not present at all. He says, each faith and reason is in them in the first act, not in the second, in the sowing, not in the harvest, in the root, not in the fruit, in the internal power of the spirit, not in the external demonstration of work. So, The Reformed belief that salvation is of the Lord nowhere finds more suitable persons to demonstrate this than covenant children. The Westminster Public Directory for Worship called the children of believers Christians. And so we baptize them because they are Christians. If, as present-day anti-Pedo-Baptists argue, faith is required for baptism— Many, though not all, of the Reformed, historically speaking, would agree and answer that we are to judge that the habit of faith is present in covenant children, according to our judgment of charity based upon the promise of God. Baptism is not a sign of a child's faith, nor is it a sign of any adult's faith. Rather, baptism is a sign that children and adults must look to and embraced by faith until they die, or else the baptism becomes a curse instead of a blessing. Circumcision was not a sign of faith, but a sign that faith embraced or looked to because it represented God's saving righteousness in Romans 4.11. Baptism represents Christ, in whom our faith must rest. In the case of Isaac, he received a sign that his father Abraham received after he believed. 
This does not make sense unless it is based upon three mutually interrelated factors. The covenant promise, the nature of the church, and the seed of faith. Finally, the sanctification of Christ proved to be an important argument for the Reformed as to why we should not doubt the holiness and regeneration of covenant children. Thomas Goodwin, for example, gives a fairly representative position on this matter. He says, Christ himself, who sanctified our nature to the end that we might be sanctified, representatively sanctified every age of man he went through, as well as those ages or years of man's life he fell short of. Now, therefore, he was sanctified in the womb to sanctify some infants in the womb. Goodwin's position is not as strong as, say, Vitius or Ursinus, since he, like many other Reformed, allow for regeneration to take place in many instances later in one's life through the preaching of the word. The difference between the two positions may be summed up thus. For those who generally hold to the view that elect infants possess faith before baptism, the word is used during the course of their life to bring forth acts of faith based upon the habit of faith being present, whereas the other view would lean towards baptism being rightly administered based on the promise, but the promise will ordinarily take effect post-baptism, or in some cases at the moment of baptism through the means of the word. So you either have, they possess, based on the judgment of charity, the habits of faith, and so we baptize lawfully because they possess what is signified, or we baptize because the promises of God compel us to baptize because those promises are real, and so we are putting faith not in the person but in the promise of God when we baptize our child, who will then look to baptism and embrace by faith God, and it may come, regeneration may come after baptism, ordinarily speaking. The question is, ordinarily speaking, how are we to judge? And there's a large strain of Reformed theologians who judge that we believe in believers' baptism. That is where you get the distinction between the habits of faith versus the acts of faith. So, in conclusion, we must remember that God's basic commitment to this world has not fundamentally changed, even from the time of Adam's innocence. Adam's children, if he had not sinned, would have been believers. They would have belonged to the church, the worshipping community of those who are children of God. When God institutes his covenant of grace after the fall, he does not alter his purposes dramatically. Rather, in and through Jesus Christ, he deals by way of a covenant insofar as he establishes his church, which includes not just adults, but also children and infants. Often, paedobaptists have argued based upon the continuity of the Old and New Testaments. But God is actually returning us to a better Eden. One day the world will have Jesus, not Adam, as the king where he will reign with his people. Thus, the continuity is not just with God's purposes in the Old Testament in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, but also in terms of God's original intention for mankind. So we talk about continuity between the Old and New Testaments, Abraham and the New Covenant, but it's actually there's a continuity between Eden and the New Covenant. Thus, the continuity is not just in terms of God's purposes in the Old Testament, but also God's intention for mankind. Grace does not obliterate nature, but as Bavink once said, perfects it. Herman Bavink actually sums this up well. He says, The covenant of grace pronounces the deep and beautiful truth that Adam has been replaced by Christ, that the humanity that fell in the person of the first is restored in the second, that not just a few separate individuals are saved, but that in the elect under Christ, the organism of humanity and of the world itself is saved. For that reason, the covenant of grace does not leap from individual to individual, but perpetuates itself organically and historically. 
It is never made with a solitary individual, but always also with his or her descendants. Uh, this reminds me of Warfield, who said that the argument in a nutshell is simply this. God established his church in the days of Abraham and put children into it. And I would argue before that, informally speaking, they must remain there until he puts them out. He has nowhere put them out. They are still members of his church and as such entitled to its ordinances. Among these ordinances is baptism. So if we're to sum up everything we've said, looking at children in the context of the church, you have to look at the nature of the church in all ages. And by that, I mean Eden, not just post-fall. Then you look at the promises of God. You look at what is sealed in baptism must be done so to those who possess, according to some, the reality so that they are baptized lawfully. So how can you deny baptism to someone who possesses the reality? And so that's why they thought they should be baptized. And so when you debate, well, what about the new covenant? It talks about people who are believers in the new covenant. Many reformed would say, so what's your point? We believe that. We believe the new covenant is made up of believers. We distinguish between those who possess faith in the habit versus in acts. And so we baptize based upon the promise where the habit is present. And so we believe in believers' baptism, which is all to say that this basic talk and lecture has been to make us all Baptists. And that is the conclusion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library of Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules, at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, spread the word, and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just $1. Until next time, thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Greystone. Thank you.